And do you know how many people would probably like run away at the sight of dismembered legs? Yeah. Dude, there's a four foot bong and a bag of weed by your bed. <laughs> Jelly Wings, the parlor game for nerds, is nearing extinction. It's in my pod! It's in my pod! <laughs> I will find proof. <laughs> I'm very easily startled, Mr. Finkley. <laughs> I don't know which regulation body would regulate the uh, penis ring that you were talking about earlier. <laughs> I'm ready to remain conscious as we record this show. Hey, welcome to Medical Stuff. My name is Mark. Goofy names tonight, Frankum. And I'm going to be doing another solo one. Not Han Solo, the uh, rebellion leader and uh, rapscallion of Star Wars, but just me. Solo. Chris is off taking care of some family business, and so you got me. <laughs> so this evening, I'm going to be talking about uh, serious diseases with kind of goofy names. Uh, some of these are uh, interesting. Some of them are very serious. So yeah, let's dive right into that. <clears throat> so when I'm talking about serious names, uh, serious diseases. But goofy names. Uh, so, as an example of a couple of them, we're going to talk about uh, Pickwickian syndrome. Uh, we're also going to be talking about uh, dropsy. Uh, my personal favorite is going to be the jumping Frenchman of Maine. So, that's just a couple to kind of whet your appetite for what's going to be going on this evening. So, Pickwickian syndrome. What is this? This is obesity hypoventilation syndrome. It is a condition in which severely overweight people fail to breathe rapidly rapidly enough or deeply enough, resulting in low oxygen levels and high blood carbon dioxide levels. Many people with this condition also frequently stop breathing altogether, altogether for short periods of time. And uh, this is obstructive sleep apnea. And uh, results uh, resulting in many partial awakenings during the night. So with sleep apnea, the problem with sleep apnea is that... Uh, Every time you stop breathing for a few minutes or, you know, 30 seconds or however long it is, well, that brings you up uh, out of sleep with a startle response. And the startle response will cause a an adrenaline dump to some, exa- uh, to some extent because your brain starts freaking out because it can't breathe. Well, that jacks up your heart rate, jacks up your uh, blood pressure. And so this can actually... Uh, sleep apnea can cause uh, heart attacks and strokes if it goes on long enough. And a lot of times these will happen many, many times every hour. So it's not like it happens oh, twice a night. You know, it's your body is constantly going through this cycle. <clears throat> I think the highest I've heard was like um, 45 times in an hour. Although I think they can, can go higher than that. Where you have this startle response. And jack up in blood pressure but you don't really come awake enough to wake up you just kind of uh, you start breathing again your body's like oh yeah never mind false alarm and 45 seconds later it's doing the same thing again so that's the problem with sleep apnea so the disease puts strain on the heart which eventually may lead to symptoms such as heart failure leg swelling various other related symptoms so yeah you go into congestive heart failure um formal criteria for diagnosis of the pickwickian syndrome would be a uh, body mass of over 30 kilograms per meter squared. Wow. 
So it's a measure of obesity, taking one's height in kilograms and dividing it by one's height in meters squared. I wonder what mine is. You know, I'm not going to do it here on the air, but still wonder how what it is. Uh, your arterial carbon dioxide levels over 45 millimeters of mercury or 6 kPa's, which are kilopascals, determining uh, which a kilopascal is a term, is a um, denotes pressure. They use it as a as an equivalent to like one atmosphere. There's so many kilopascals. Uh, they deter and that's determined by an uh, ABG measurement or arterial blood gas. Um, so that is one of the ways that they, uh, so to, to define this, you got to have the body mass there. You got to have the uh, high carbon dioxide levels. And then there's no other explanation for the hypoventilation, such as taking pain medications, narcotics, uh, severe obstructive or interstitial lung disease. Something, something else is going on in the lung. Severe chest wall disorders, such as um, <laughs> kyphoscoliosis. Well, that was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be, actually. Uh, severe hypothyroidism, neuromuscular disease, or congenital central hypoventilation. So, if they don't have any of those, and you're ha still having the symptoms, then you probably have Pickwickian syndrome. Now, I will tell you this. The uh, first time I ever heard Pickwickian syndrome, I, I didn't think it was real. I didn't believe the name of it. A uh, patient mentioned it. I asked the doctor at the hospital, and he's like, oh, yeah, it's this. I don't know. I just had something much more uh, Dickensian in mind when I heard this, you know. Good morning, Governor. How are you? Hello, Snipe. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing good. You're looking awful pickwicky in this, this morning. Well, thank you, Snipe. Here's a farthing for you. That's kind of what ran through my head. So, that was wrong. And apparently this is a legit disease. So, treatment for this. If you have stable uh, Pickwickian syndrome, the most important treatment is, here's a shocker. I hope you're all are sitting down. If you're driving, you might want to stop it here and wait till the car stopped. It's going to be weight loss. Yeah. Uh, by diet, through exercise, with medications, and sometimes uh, weight loss surgery, such as bariatric surgery. This has been shown to improve symptoms of the uh, Pickwickian syndrome and resolution of the high carbon dioxide levels. Weight loss may take a long time and is not always successful. Bariatric surgery is avoided if possible, given the high rate of complications with uh, bariatric surgery, but may be considered if other treatment modifications and modalities are ineffective in improving oxygen levels and symptoms. In the, uh, and symptoms. If the symptoms are significant, uh, you might also get a CPAP machine. You probably will either way. And uh, CPAPs, uh, well, you can have a CPAP or a BiPAP. A CPAP is continuous positive air pressure, basically... Through a mask, it blows air down the back of your throat, keeping it open. So when you you don't have that blocking off of the airway, so you don't stop breathing, so you don't get that sudden jerk open. So, yeah, that's Pickwickian syndrome, our first serious syndrome with a goofy name. So, let's see here. What's next? We have dropsy. It's also called hydrodropsy or just dropsy, is generalized swelling due to accumulation of excessive water. So this is kind of a, an old school term for congestive heart failure. Uh, as you see the patient uh, today, uh, the, you know, this is not a new thing. And the way the, hate, uh, the heart failure was known, back then was known as dropsy. Uh, there's a quotation from the daughter of the ruler of the Byzantine Empire, Alexis I. 
Uh, he was a Byzantine emperor from uh, 1081 to 1118. So uh, this was the first description of heart failure. His heart, they say, was inflamed. It was attracting all the superfluous matter, which uh, will be all the cytokines, cytokines. Every day he grew worse. He was unable to lay on either side. He was forced to sit up to breathe at all. His stomach was enlarged and his feet were also swelled up. And feeder, fever laid him low and some doctors wanted to cath, uh, do catheterization. So with congestive heart failure, basically, so the most common form of heart failure is going to be left-sided uh, heart failure. What's happening is, is that the right side of the heart or the right ventricle is pumping blood into the lungs for oxygenation. The left side of the heart, the left ventricle is the workhorse and it's there to really pump the blood around the body. And it's pumping less blood out than is going into the lungs. And so that causes a back pressure. Well, the most common way for your body to handle this is through what's called third spacing, whereby there is room in between the cells and the vasculature that the, you know, it's just kind of empty and it's, you know, kind of empty for a reason. But when you get this back up, the, uh, the water or the blood and everything are going to start, the plasma are going to start to pool at the lowest point. And that initially, more than likely, is going to be in somebody's feet and their lower legs. And so for him, it was backing up all the way up. He was full from the sounds of it. Uh, the having to sit up to breathe is very, very common when we come across these patients that either have it undiagnosed or are diagnosed with it and having a, a flare-up. One of the things we ask is... Uh, how many pillows do you sleep with at night? You know, do you sleep in your bed or do you sleep in your recliner? Uh, and if they're like, well, I've been sleeping with four pillows. Okay, well, do you normally sleep with four pillows? No, I normally don't. So I just sleep with one. It's like, okay. Do you normally sleep in your recliner? No, you usually sleep in bed. So what's happening is that there's actually fluid in the lungs. And when you lay flat, that fluid covers more surface area. And so it makes it harder to breathe. So you sit up. The more you sit up, the more that all percolates down to the bottom and uh, gives you more room in the lungs to, to uh, move air. The problem is it's just not going to take care of itself. So because the heart, I mean, short of the heart repairing itself and just starting to, you know, beat better, um, you're just going to keep backing up and backing up and backing up. And if it gets bad enough, it can they can actually start fulminating a pink frothy sputum out of their mouth where it's just pouring out of their lungs and out of their mouth onto the floor in front of them and they're drowning so that is all bad let's stay away from that kids you know so <clears throat> that is dropsy so the next one is going to be the jumping frenchman of maine or jumping frenchman disorder so the jumping frenchman of maine uh were a group of 19th century lumberjacks who exhibited a rare disorder of unknown origin uh, initially, they thought it was to be uh, it was a uh, physiological thing. It's now become more of a psychological thing. The syndrome entails an exaggerated startle reflex, which may be described as an uncontrollable jump. Individuals with this condition can exhibit sudden movements in all parts of the body. So you've probably come across somebody who is easy to startle, you know, and they their whole body tenses up. They jump. Um, I may have had a partner just recently who was fairly, uh, fairly startle, startleable. And I was at a local hospital and they have an EMT room there where they have, you know, microwave and 
water and granola bars and stuff like that. And I was in there heating up my food. <laughs> so just so you know, I'm not a great person. I'm not a, I'm not a stellar human being. <laughs> so I heard uh, my partner, she was walking up with our third rider. I heard them talking outside the door. And when she came in, I didn't jump up. I didn't do anything. I just went, brah. She jumped and screamed so loud it echoed down the hallway. And she jumped and turned away from me. So you may say, hmm, does she have jumping Frenchman syndrome? Well, probably not. Uh, individuals with this condition were first found in the Moosehead Lake region of Maine. And they were described by George Miller Beard in 1878. Although the cause of Frenching, uh, jumping Frenchmen, Frenching Jumpmen, it's a completely different group, <laughs> Frenching Jumpmen, <laughs> it's actually quite a coordinated sort of thing to do. Uh, the Jumping Frenchman Syndrome is unknown. One theory is it's a genetic condition. Uh, observation of 50 cases found the disorder to be remotely located and concentrated in the northern regions of Maine. 14 of, the, 14 of these cases were found in four families. Another set of cases were found in single family where the father, his two sons, and his two grandchildren exhibit jumping behavior. So you can be skittish, but one of the kind of hallmark, uh, one of the hallmark signs of jumping Frenchman of Maine syndrome is that when startled, if you're startled by somebody yelling instructions at you, you will yell the instructions out loud and you could do them without uh, being able to stop yourself. And so uh, George Miller Beard recorded individuals who would obey any command given suddenly, even if it meant striking a loved one. Uh, the jumping Frenchman seemed to react abnormally to sudden stimuli. The more common or less intense symptoms included jumping, yelling, and hitting. These, individu these individuals exhibited outrageous bursts that may describe them as themselves as ticklish or shy. Other cases uh, involved echolalia, repeating vocalizations made by another person. Echopraxia, repeating movements made by another person. Uh, Beard noted that many uh, that the men were suggestible and that they could not help repeating the words or sounds that came from the person that ordered them uh, any more than they could uh, help striking, dropping, throwing, jumping, or startling. So... Not only did, not only do they have this shocked uh, response, but they could be given simple commands. And uh, one video I saw on, on online, because there were I was looking around for videos. Now there's videos of a band called Jumping Frenchmen have nothing to do with this, but in one of them the person's given their uh, given the order to drop their pants, and they do it, you know. So. So yeah, it's uh, it's quite an interesting thing. It hasn't really been seen that much beyond the late 19th century. Uh, some of the causes they think that may have been a culture-bound syndrome or, or a formed habit. Uh, these French jumpers lived in very remote regions and were mostly uh, lumberjacks. This small type of community would allow for majority to adapt to this sort of reaction. Also, instances of what may be uh, shaw uh, a what many being also instances of many being shy may imply that the jumper was positively reinforced by a sudden attention as the entertainment for the group. So they're saying it's kind of a psychological response where, you know, they get attention for it, even negative attention, still attention. In 1885, uh, George Guise de la Tourette of the famous Tourette syndrome 
included jumping Frenchman syndrome in the typology of the convulsiveness tick illness. Studies of the condition in the 1980s cast doubt on whether the phenomenon was in fact a physical condition uh, similar to Tourette's. Uh, documentation of direct observation of jumping Frenchmen has been scarce. I guess it still is around. And while videotape evidence was recorded by several researchers that show the condition to be real, uh, it was concluded from studying uh, eight affected people that it was brought on by conditions at their lumber camps and was psychological, not neurological. So, I mean, they were studying them in the 80s. So, yeah, I guess it still goes on. So, yeah, they're feeling it's maybe a... Uh, psychological reaction to the situation not so much a neurological or physiological so that's the uh jumping frenchman of maine you know if you think about it, these days and age you could probably turn that into a tourist attraction of some form so <laughs> uh so we've only got a couple more here this isn't going to be an extremely long episode uh i was <laughs> i'll be honest with you um I was planning, when I set this up, I was planning on Chris being here, and uh, we'd have a lot to say about these things. <laughs> oh, I miss you, Chris. We'll get together very, very soon and uh, record some episodes, man. So, broken heart syndrome, or Takasubo cardiomyopathy, is known as a stress cardiomyopathy. It is a type of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. So, non-ischemic meaning it does not do damage. Uh, cardiomyopathy being that there's a, some sort of muscle, cardiac muscle involvement in which there is a temporary weakening of the muscle portion of the heart. This weakening can be triggered by emotional stress, such as the death of a loved one, a breakup, a rejection from a partner, or constant anxiety. This leads to one of the common names, broken heart syndrome. So stress cardiomyopathy is a well-recognized cause of acute heart failure, lethal ventricular arrhythmias, and ventricular rupture. So, yeah, those are all horribly bad problems. The nickname, or the name, Takatsubo syndrome comes from the Japanese word Takatsubo, or octopus trap, because the left ventricle takes on the shape resembling an octopus trap. So, some of the signs and symptoms. Uh, the typical presentation of the cardiomyopathy is chest pain associated with electrocardiogram changes, mimicking a myocardial infarction of the anterior wall. So this looks like a heart attack on the front wall of your heart. During uh, the examination of the patient, uh, there will be a bulging of the left ventricle apex with a hypercontractile base of the left ventricle is often noted. So you've got just this large bulging, and this is where the Takatsubu, Subo, uh, term came from because it starts uh, bulging out and looking like a uh, an octopus track. I'm sorry, trap. You know, that's the hallmark bulging out of the apex of the heart, which preserved uh, function of the base with the preserved function of the base that the, earned its name the octopus trap where it first was described. So the hypercontractile base means that it's still hopefully functioning at a normal rate. So... The cause of Takatsubo cardiomyopathy is not fully understood, but there are several mechanisms have been proposed. Uh, transient vasospasm. So some of the original researchers suggested that multiple, uh, multiple simultaneous spasms of a coronary artery 
could cause enough loss of blood flow to cause transient stunning of the myocardium. Other research, researchers have shown that the vasospasm is much less common than initially thought. It has been noted that uh, when there were multiple vasospasms, even the multiple, even in multiple arteries, they do not correlate within the areas of the myocardium that are not contracting. So that's one. Microvascular dysfunction. This theory gaining, uh, the theory gaining in the most traction is that of dysfunction of the coronary arteries at the level where they are no longer visible by coronary angiography. So when they go in, these are the really, really tiny ones. Uh, they could include microvascular spasm. However, it may well have some similarities to the disease such as diabetes mellitus. In such disease, uh, disease conditions, the microvascular arteries fail to provide adequate oxygen to the myocardium. Uh, midventricular obstruction, apical stunning. It has been suggested that a midventricular wall thickening with outflow obstruction is important in the pathophysiology of uh, broken heart syndrome. And then catecholamine-induced myocyte injury. It has been su suggested that the response of the catecholamines, such as epinorepinephrine, released in the response to the stress, leads to the heart muscle dysfunction that contributes to Takotsubo uh, cardiomyopathy. It is likely that usually what's going on is multiple factors at play. Uh, there could include some amount of vasospasm, failure of the microvasculature, you know, the um, catecholine-induced myocyte injury. You know, you have kind of the perfect storm coming on with these patients. Uh, case series uh, looking at large groups of patients report that some patients develop Takotsubo cardiomyopathy after emotional stress, while others have a preceding clinical stressor, stressor such as asthma attack or sudden illness. Roughly one-third of the patients have no preceding stressful event. So <laughs> one-third of the patients just, <laughs> my heart's going to give up for a bit. A uh, 2009 large case series from Europe found that Takasubo cardiomyopathy is slightly more frequent during the winter season. This may be related to two possible suspected pathophysiological causes. Coronary spasms of microvessels, which are often more prevalent in cold weather, and viral infections as a, such as the parvovirus B19, which occur more frequently during the winter. So treatment for this. Treatment of uh, Takotsubo cardiomyopathy is generally supportive in nature, uh, for it is considered a transient disorder. Treatment is dependent on whether the patients experience heart failure or acute hypotension or shock. Um, in many individuals, left ventricular heart function normalizes within two months. Well, you know, it doesn't take too long, I guess. Aspirin and other heart drugs also appear to help in the treatment of the disease, even in extreme cases. After the patient has been diagnosed and myocardial infarction has been ruled out, the aspirin regime may be discontinued and treatment becomes that of supporting the patient. While uh, medical treatments are important to, the, to address the acute symptoms of Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, Further treatment includes lifestyle changes. It's important that the individual stay physically healthy while learning and maintaining methods to manage stress and to cope with future difficult situations. So, yeah, you just kind of got to get healthy and then learn how to deal with that stress, be it a trigger or, you know, a medical stress. You know, you just, you can't, I'm assuming this is not something that you want to do more than once to your heart. It doesn't seem like something that you can do over and over again without some pretty severe uh, reactions to it. 
So. so this brings us down to our final goofy disease, or goofy name with a serious disease. And this is probably, uh, fits both categories very well. Uh, maple syrup urine disease. Yes. I'm going to say that again just to make sure you all understood what I said. <laughs> maple syrup urine disease. So maple syrup urine disease is an inherited disorder in which the body is unable to produce certain uh, building blocks uh, like amino acids properly. The condition gets its name from the distinctive sweet odor of affected infant's urine. So this is a childhood disease. So the disease is a name for the presence of the sweet-smelling uh, sweet urine, an odd similarity to that of maple syrup, and when the person goes in, uh, for when they go into the metabolic crisis. Uh, the, sim the smell is present, uh, sometimes stronger in the earwax in an affected individual at these times. Infants with this disease seem healthy at birth but quickly deteriorate, often with severe brain damage, which may be permanent. Death often occurs within the first five months in severe cases of the disease when left untreated. If you have something of a later onset, uh, the symptoms of maple syrup urine disease can be, may also present... Um, depending on later, depending on the severity of the disease. Untreated in older individuals and during times of metabolic crisis, symptoms of the condition may include uncharacteristically inappropriate, extreme or erratic behavior and moods, hallucinations, anorexia, weight loss, anemia, diarrhea, vomiting, dehydration, lethargy, oscill oscillating hypertonia and, hypo and hypotonia, ataxia, seizures, hypo, hypoglycemia, ketoacidosis, opisthotonus, opisthotonus, oh, okay, uh, pancreatitis, rapid neurological decline, and coma. Without prompt treatment, these, uh, they will likely die from cerebral edema. Additionally, maple syrup urine disease, which sounds so benign, but then you start reading about it in research, it's like, Jesus. So maple syrup urine disease, uh, patients often experience an abnormal course of the disease in simple infections that become increasingly severe and can have permanent damage. In more rare cases, concomitant osteoporosis may appear in these patients. And concomitant, I have to look that one up, is a phenomenon that naturally accompanies or follows something. Naturally accompanying or associated there you go. Word of the day. Throw that out while you're at work. Oh, I'm sorry, but is this concomitant? Are these symptoms concomitant? Yeah, throw that out there. What the hell? It's uh, one of those words that, uh, in this case, it is real, but nobody will, be, nobody will be willing to call you out on it. So, so uh, maple syrup urine disease is a metabolic disorder caused by a deficiency of the branched chain alpha-ketoacid dehydrogenase complex. You know, the BCKDC. <laughs> Leading to a buildup of the branch chain amino acids, uh, leucine, isoleucine, and valine, and their toxic by uh, byproducts, which are keto acids in the blood and urine. There are several different variations of this disease. The classic, severe, the intermediate, the intermittent, the thiamine responsive, and the E3 deficient MU, uh, MSUD, maple syrup urine disease, with lactic acidosis. Now, 
I went in to go find a bunch of information about those to try and give it a little bit more in depth. And it got technical quick. <laughs> I was just like, yikes. They started talking about all these different receptors and different parts of the liver. So you're more than welcome to go do that research on your own. <laughs> Uh, let's just leave it at there's a bunch of different levels of it so, uh let's see here treatment keeping msud maple syrup urine disease under control requires uh, under control requires careful monitoring of blood chemistry both at home and in the hospital setting so uh, diet with carefully controlled levels of amino acids leucine isoleucine and valine must be maintained at all times in order to prevent neurological damage. Since these uh, three amino acids occur in all natural protein, and most natural foods contain some protein, any food intake must be closely monitored and day-to-day -day protein intake calculated on a cumulative basis to ensure the individual tolerance levels are not exceeded at any time. Wow. So the blood chemistry is going to be... Uh, monitored your urine output is going to be monitored and your, uh, your urine chemistry is going to be monitored and then you have a very restrictive restrictive diet uh, usually um, maple syrup urine disease patients are monitored by a dietitian liver transplant is another option that can com uh, completely and permanently normalize metabolic function enabling discontinuation of the nutritional supplements and strict monitoring of the biochemistry and caloric intake, relaxation of the uh, maple syrup urine disease-related lifestyle precautions, and an unrestricted diet. The procedure is most successful performed at a young age, and weaning from the immunosuppressants may be even be possible in the long run. So if you get a, a transplant when you're young enough, and you go long enough on immunosuppressants without any sort of reactions, there's a possibility that you can come off the immunosuppressants and you don't have to be beyond them for life, that your body comes to accept that organ. But the surgery is a, a major undertaking requiring extensive hospitalization, rigorous adherence to, a, to the tapering regime of the medications. So even though this seems like a great outcome or a great, you know, possibility, it is a very tough road to get there. So, Yeah. It's not taken lightly at all. So that is all I have this evening. Like I said, it's going to be kind of a short episode, and I do apologize for that. But I was uh, accounting for a lot of uh, a lot of pad conversation between Chris and I over these diseases and the names and everything else. But I still think it was pretty informative, and I think it was a little bit fun. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you would like to reach out to us, you can... Uh, Get us on Twitter at Medical Stuff 50. I'm sorry, but Twitter on Twitter at Medside Stuff, M E D S I D E S T U F F. We're on Instagram at Medical Stuff 52. We're also on Facebook at Medical Stuff. If you want to send us an email, it's Medside Stuff, M E D S I D E S T U F F at yahoo.com. And we require, we, we, uh, we appreciate all the messages. We try to respond as fast as we can. Sometimes it's Chris responding. Sometimes it's me. But we do try to get to them very quickly. We try to stay on top of them. So does Chris. Because we appreciate it. We appreciate everything you all do by listening. We appreciate the fact that people do listen to us. And uh, I can't wait to get back uh, to recording with Chris, which will happen soon, I'm sure. And uh, we'll have some fun and have some education and have a great time.
uh, listener this week asked us uh, asked what the the toast at the end of the uh, show is, and Chris and I have uh, talked about it in the past, and basically. <laughs> The mystery is much better than the reality. So we're going to keep that one a little bit close to the chest at this time. So trust me, we're going to, if we tell you the answer, you're going to be, seriously, <laughs> that's what this is all about. So I hope you're having a great week. We will talk to you next Monday morning. And as always, toast. <laughs>